there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The ocean had suddenly gone quiet. 16-year-old Jonathan Catherine hadn't been a surfer his whole life, but he'd been doing it long enough to know this feeling. The feeling that every living creature around him had just found a reason to scatter somewhere else. As he sat on his bodyboard, legs dangling in the water below him, the stillness began to unnerve him. Where had everyone and everything gone? Jonathan shivered, despite the wetsuit he wore to protect against the chilly ocean water. He wasn't sure what it was about the strange stillness that was so unsettling but he couldn't shake the uneasy feeling that had washed over him. Perhaps, he thought, it would be best to make his way back toward land. He lay down flat on his stomach and angled his board to shore. He reached out to begin paddling, but immediately yanked his arm back in surprise. His fingertips had brushed against a rough, sandpaper-like texture. It was the surface of something solid, something massive something deadly. Jonathan realized what this meant. His instincts hadn't misled him. The disquieting calm of the ocean around him had, in fact, been screaming an alert. Get out. But now, it was too late. Jonathan was trapped on the open water with the ocean's greatest predator. He was being hunted by a great white shark. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
Today, we're discussing Jonathan Catherine, a teenage bodyboarder who was attacked by a great white shark off the coast of Northern California on August 26, 1998. Jonathan found himself in the nightmare scenario, stranded in the ocean, badly injured, and forced to muster all his survival instincts to get back to shore, or wind up in the jaws of the ocean's greatest predator. There's a stretch of coastline in Northern California that runs from Big Sur to Bodega Bay. It's home to some of the most idyllic scenery imaginable. Rocky cliffs loom over tourist-filled beaches where gigantic curling waves beckon surfers like a siren song. But the picturesque setting belies the truth hidden beneath the ocean's surface. These 200 miles of coast may be the most dangerous coastline in the world. Under the rolling ocean waters, hundreds of great white sharks spend their days hunting. In fact, of all shark attacks in the United States, it's estimated that 40% of them occur in this section of the California coast. And the region accounts for a little over a tenth of all attacks worldwide. The area of water that extends from this coastline out to the Farallon Islands, 27 miles offshore, is known as the Red Triangle. Its name refers to the blood of seals and other prey of the Great White in the water. Shark expert Scott Anderson wrote that his research expeditions into this area encountered a Great White once every two hours. Researchers estimate that some 215 Great Whites call the area home, a number that becomes more impressive when you actually find yourself surrounded by the enormous sharks. Great Whites are one of the largest of all shark species. In fact, they're the biggest predatory fish in the sea. Males on average reach up to 13 feet, while females are even larger, growing up to an average of 16 feet. Adult Great Whites can weigh anywhere between 1,500 and 5,000 pounds. That's more than a sedan. And in addition to being among the largest, Great Whites are reportedly the shark species that most frequently attacks humans. Scientists suspect that the high frequency of bites is due to the Great Whites' habit of testing their food, coming up close, taking a bite, and swimming away to decide whether they liked it enough to finish the meal. But what draws these terrifying, awesome Great White Sharks to the Red Triangle in the first place? Simply put, it's the dining options. The waters have been home to an unusually high concentration of seals, sea lions, and other wildlife since 1972, when the Marine Mammal Protection Act ended seal hunting in the area. The increased population of seals directly correlated to an uptick in shark sightings. The concentration is especially dramatic around the Bolinas Lagoon. Here, warm water and a sunny shoreline provide sea lions, seals, otters, and more with a place to rest their heads. As a result, great whites lurk in the droves at the narrow mouth of the lagoon, waiting for their prey to emerge and become their next meal. You might think that these shark-filled waters would be off-limits to swimmers, that the beaches would be closed and barren, 
all potential visitors warned off by posted signs about the most recent shark sightings. But if you visit this portion of California, you'll find plenty of human activity. Because these waters don't just contain sharks, they contain monster waves too, and offer some of the best surfing around. Getting in those waves was all that high school sophomore Jonathan Catherine was thinking about on the morning of Wednesday, August 26, 1998. It was the last day of summer vacation. Jonathan was heading out for a final afternoon of freedom and unburdened joy before he would be forced to return to the monotonous routine of the school year. Strapping his bodyboard to the roof of his car, he waved goodbye to his mother before he pulled out of the driveway. He'd be back in just a few hours. On the way, he stopped at his best friend Sean's house. Sean toted his own bodyboard under his arm, and after strapping it to the roof as well, the two set out for a day of riding the waves at Stinson Beach. 16 years old and carefree as could be, Jonathan was a transplant to Northern California. As a Midwestern kid who'd never heard the term Red Triangle, he had little sense that the waters he was headed toward might be dangerous. But even if Jonathan had known this, there was reason to be confident anyway. There had never been a shark attack at Stinson Beach. There were shark sightings, of course, but nobody had personally encountered the might of this apex predator. The car pulled into the parking lot of the beach and the boys leapt out excitedly. They ran past the sign marking their location. The boys hurriedly tucked their bodyboards under their arms and ran out toward the water, eager to dive in while the waves were so high. One safety tactic when surfing is to maintain visual awareness. Around Stinson Beach, dolphins and other wildlife can frequently be seen popping up from the deep to collect oxygen before returning underwater. But eagle-eyed surfers might also spot the telltale dorsal fin of a shark surfacing as it hunts its prey, giving them some chance to head back to shore before it's too late. This extra bit of awareness might be the difference between coming home with a scary story or not coming home at all. On this day, however, there were plenty of surfers in the water. Clearly, nobody had seen a shark recently or they would have left the area. There seemed little reason to be concerned. Sean and Jonathan dove straight into the ocean, relishing the chill the frigid water sent up their spines. While Jonathan had a wetsuit to protect him, Sean went without. The boys then concerned themselves with the work that makes up most of bodyboarding, the paddling. To get waves big enough to ride, they would have to paddle out 100 feet or more from the beach, all while contending with the force of the waves beating them ceaselessly back toward the shore. It's exhausting work and tends to be what takes the wind out of someone's sails. But although he was a Midwestern kid, Jonathan had taken to the ocean immediately upon moving to California. He knew which waves to paddle over and which ones were best to swim under to conserve his energy for as long as possible. Out on the water, the boys felt that they were part of something larger, a community of wave riders, all looking out for each other and trying to make sure everyone had a good time. And at least for the afternoon, 
They were part of the biosphere of the ocean, slicing through the water as effortlessly as the seals and fish that called it their home, until they were suddenly reminded of another resident of these parts of the water. Shark! The call came from a surfer further down the way, and Jonathan saw it, the dorsal fin, emerging from the water, barely 15 feet away from him. Immediately, everyone followed protocol. They paddled back toward the shore, removing themselves from the water as quickly as possible. Jonathan did what he was supposed to, calmly following the others back to shore. But his heart was pounding, his chest tight. He wanted desperately to get away from the danger zone. This far out from shore, though, you're usually counting on a bit of luck. With little chance of making a quick return to the beach, you can only pray you're not in the line of fire. From beneath the water, it surfaced just a few feet from Jonathan, a dorsal fin. Then, right beside it, a second one. Jonathan was surrounded, and all he could do was swim for his life. Next, Jonathan comes face to face with a surfer's worst nightmare. Now, back to our story. On August 26, 1998, 16-year-old Jonathan Catherine headed to Stinson Beach for one last day of bodyboarding before the school year began. But things took a terrifying turn when a nearby surfer yelled shark. Within moments, two dorsal fins surfaced mere feet from Jonathan and his best friend, Sean. The teenagers watched in awe as one slick, dark body, and then the other, surfaced from beneath the water. But to their shock, the creatures were not sharks. They were dolphins. Jonathan breathed a sigh of relief. He and Sean exchanged a look, both admiring a rare, close-up view of the beautiful creatures. After a moment, Jonathan turned and began to paddle back out for more waves. While Jonathan had been momentarily terrified by the prospect of a pair of sharks, he knew that there was little reason to be worried, at least statistically speaking. The public perception of shark attacks is vastly disproportionate to their frequency in real life. Scientists estimate that surfers actually only have about a 1 in 11 million chance of falling victim to a shark attack. And Jonathan's odds of encountering a shark had always seemed to be lower than most. For most of his life, he wasn't even a surfer. He had been born and raised in Illinois, with no significant body of water around him. As a child, he dreamed of the California coast as a sort of promised land, the waves crashing against the beach, the surfers riding through an arching tunnel of water, the tourists soaking up the sun and playing in the sand. Friends of his vacationed in California. Some even moved there. And Jonathan stayed in his small, quiet neighborhood, hoping for a chance to visit the ocean. His family vacations to Madison, Wisconsin, at least got him close to the water. Jonathan and his brothers, Michael and Eric, would stay at a family lake house there, but it was no substitute for the real thing. Finally, the dream came true. Jonathan's father was approved for a transfer to San Francisco. For the first time in his life, 
Jonathan saw the Pacific Ocean. It was more immense and churning and consuming than he'd imagined in his wildest dreams. He fell in love at first sight. Jonathan's brothers, Michael and Eric, would often join him out on the waves as the three of them learned to surf. They looked out for each other. They made sure nobody got stuck out there alone. On August 26, 1998, Jonathan's brothers had opted to sleep in rather than go bodyboarding, but he still had his best friend Sean to accompany him. But they'd been in the water for some time now, and Sean was starting to feel the absence of his wetsuit. He told Jonathan he was heading back to the beach to dry off, catch some sun, and shake the chill from his bones. As Sean began to swim away, Jonathan looked around. The ocean was oddly quiet. The surfers, who not long before had been admiring the dolphins, all seemed to have moved on to other destinations. But though the feeling set Jonathan a little off ease, he simply sat on his board, legs dangling in the water, waiting for the next good wave. He reached into the water, ready to take off paddling again, when his hand hit something. It felt like sandpaper, but it was solid, solid enough to startle him. His eyes scoured the water, looking for a possible explanation. He hoped for a moment that perhaps he'd simply touched a dolphin or a jellyfish. But the dolphins had vanished, and their slick skin wouldn't explain the rough sandpaper-like surface of the thing he'd just brushed against anyway. That texture was unmistakable for anyone who'd done a little reading. It was the skin of a shark. Jonathan tried to keep his cool. The last thing he needed was to panic. That wouldn't do him any good. He was roughly 150 feet out from the beach and keenly aware that the more he splashed, the more noticeable and enticing he would become to the shark beneath him. While the great white might not be interested in a human, it might not be able to distinguish his movements from those of a seal. Jonathan had to find his way back to shore before it decided to get any friendlier with him. His heart was pounding, his breath heavy, but he stayed composed and tried to focus on getting back to the beach. Each passing moment felt like an eternity. He wondered where the shark was now. Had it felt his touch? Was it looking for him? He tried to push the questions out of his mind, but the terror continually threatened to overwhelm him. As he desperately paddled for shore, Jonathan saw his friend Sean in the distance, toweling off on the beach. It was a strange moment. Sean looked as carefree as the boys had been all morning. He was oblivious to the fact that, just a hundred or so feet away, Jonathan was in a desperate race for his own life. Jonathan shouted as loud as he could, screaming for help. But the waves were crashing down, drowning out his shouts. So he kept paddling and splashing violently toward the beach. As he did, he constantly glanced around him for any sign of the shark. Every ripple in the water, every sparkle of light against a cresting wave, red like the return of the predator. 
He was hyper-vigilant in a way he'd never had to be before, even in the ever-changing terrain of surfing. With any luck, this vigilance would be his savior as he made his way back toward the shore. Without warning, the shark plowed into him from directly below. Jonathan felt his body being thrown forward and pulled down all at once. Pain erupted through his body as the shark's teeth closed hard around his leg. Before he knew it, he was being pulled by an unimaginably powerful force. Jonathan hadn't been fast enough. He hadn't seen it coming. Now he was trapped in a nightmare, gripped in the jaws of the beast as it dragged him down, down, down beneath the water's surface. The shark had hit him with what felt like the force of a truck and hundreds of knives all at once. A great white can be thousands of pounds and have anywhere between five and 15 rows of teeth. Its mouth contains a total of about 300 serrated, razor-sharp blades, which could have closed around Jonathan's leg with anywhere up to 1.8 tons of force. In these situations, survival experts advise that the best strategy is a direct one, fight back. Most famously, you might have heard people suggest punching the shark's nose, but Richard Pierce, a shark expert, warns that the distinction between a shark's nose and its mouth is a fine one. In his words, what you don't want to do is end up effectively punching at the mouth or anywhere near it. Jonathan did his best to reach the nose anyway, but his angle made it impossible. He simply couldn't contort himself to reach it. Clasped tight between the razor-sharp jaws of the shark, Jonathan felt every piercing tooth as he attempted to gain some kind of foothold or advantage. He couldn't find any angle for an attack, and squirming only drove the shark's teeth deeper into his body. As the shark dragged Jonathan down into the water, he felt his anger rising. It fueled his determination to survive, to overcome this beast, and to make his way back to the shore. Acting on pure instinct, he plunged his hand into the shark's gills with all his strength. Jonathan didn't know it at the time, but he was following Richard Pierce's advice to a T. Pierce specifically notes how sensitive a shark's gills are, saying that giving a shark a whack in the gills isn't a bad idea. Jonathan's hands closed around the gills, feeling the sandpapery outer skin on his palm while his fingers felt the soft, squishy cartilage underneath. The shark's skin gets its sandpaper feel from thousands of tiny, hard, scale-like pieces that resemble interlocking teeth. In fact, that's a more accurate term than scales, given that they're made from the same material as a shark's teeth. These scales are called denticles, and their hard structure gives the shark's skin an immense amount of protection. In short, sharks gain all their power from their teeth, the ones that bite down on unwitting seals and surfers, as well as the ones that create a solid but flexible shell around their body. But underneath the gills, Jonathan had found a vulnerability, a soft spot that didn't have the same protection. He gripped tightly, 
looking for any opportunity he could to scare off his attacker. The creature held him in its maw. He held the creature's massive gills in his hands. For a brief moment, Jonathan felt like he and the shark were part of one big creature. Once again, he was part of the biosphere of the ocean, now as a low rung on the food chain. Although Jonathan was following expert advice, it was doing him little good. He gripped the gills tightly, but the shark showed no sign of slowing down. It seemed as if all hope was lost. Then, Jonathan felt an immense pressure on his leg release, and his body was once again moving freely in the water. For some reason that he couldn't fathom, the shark had spontaneously decided to release him. Jonathan didn't have time to wonder why the shark had let him go or whether it was coming back. He needed air badly. The attack had been brief but brutal, and as he beat his legs against the ocean, he could feel a sharp, awful pain in his leg. He clearly had not escaped from this encounter unscathed, if he'd escaped at all. At last, he made it to the surface and gasped for air. Jonathan's surfboard was still intact and had remained attached to him by the rope around his wrist. Grateful for this small bit of luck, he tugged the board toward himself and clambered on top of it, hugging it tightly. But he knew he wasn't out of danger yet. His leg was bleeding in the water, and any moment now, the shark might come back to finish him off. Next, Jonathan attempts the long, desperate swim back to shore. Now, back to our story. Attacked by a great white shark on the last day of summer vacation in 1998, Jonathan Catherine had thought that he was dead meat. But after a harrowing underwater ride clenched between the shark's teeth, Jonathan was suddenly released. He had just enough time to clamber onto his bodyboard. Jonathan couldn't believe his luck. He was alive. He had escaped the jaws of the ocean's deadliest creature though he still couldn't imagine what had inspired the shark to let him go. But if he had known the reason for the shark's behavior, he most likely wouldn't have been comforted. Scientists have long been aware of sharks' tendency to bite victims briefly, then let them go. This is explained as the shark taking a test bite to determine if their target was actually something they were interested in eating. Since humans aren't part of their natural diet, they would presumably move on shortly thereafter. But another, more chilling theory has been offered by some scientists regarding the great white shark specifically. It suggests that the shark releases its prey after delivering a fatal blow with its jaws, then waits at a distance while its target bleeds out. Then the shark can return to feast without dealing with a meal that's trying to fight back. This left Jonathan in a precarious position. He had no idea if the shark that attacked him was still around, waiting for him to pass out or die so that he could finish the job. And even if the shark had moved on, his bleeding leg made him a target for other sharks. Sharks are capable of smelling blood in the water from over a mile away. 
even when there are only trace amounts. Suffering from huge, gaping wounds in his leg, Jonathan was a beacon to every shark in the area. Waves of awful, searing pain were shooting through Jonathan's leg and up his side. He could tell that his leg was badly injured. He couldn't move it, for one thing. But he couldn't bring himself to look, to see just how bad the damage was. He inadvertently found himself following another solid survival tactic. Australian Navy diver Paul de Gelder found himself in the mouth of a shark in 2009 and lost significant chunks of his arm and leg during the attack. He advises that victims avoid looking at their own wounds as much as possible. He said, I thought that if I didn't look at the wound, I wouldn't go into shock. And he compared it to a little kid looking at a cut. He doesn't start crying until he sees blood. Jonathan's leg was proving to be a liability even now, while he lay prone on his belly. It threw him off balance and made it difficult for him to stay on the board. Jonathan knew it would severely slow his journey through the water and leave an easy trail for the shark to follow. But it didn't matter. Right now, he had to ignore the pain and focus on getting back to shore. Jonathan struck out with all his might. As he shakily paddled toward the shore, his aching body grew dizzy from the blood loss. The salt water of the Pacific Ocean flooded into the wound in his leg, sending waves of searing pain rippling through his body. Once again, every passing shadow or glint of light seemed like a threat. In his desperate attempt to get back to shore, Jonathan was breaking all the rules of survival laid out by shark expert Richard Pierce. He had turned his back on the creature, a move that would make it impossible to foresee the shark's next attack. But he had little choice. The only way he could get back to shore was by swimming toward it, wherever the shark happened to be. The other advice Pierce offers for a shark attack is displacing the least amount of water possible. He suggests that those who encounter a shark in the wild should stay calm, attempt to slowly swim backwards and away from the shark, and hope not to draw undue attention to themselves. But Jonathan was far past that point. The shark knew he was there, and as he flailed his limbs desperately through the water, he was making himself an easy and obvious target. He'd already personally encountered the massive power and speed of the creature. He knew he was outmatched in every regard. This is where Pierce's final words of advice are most relevant, even if they're not exactly comforting. If a white shark is in full attack mode, there's not much you're going to be able to do at that point. As Jonathan moved closer to the beach, he began to croak out a desperate plea. He didn't yet know if he was near enough to be heard, but he had to try. His energy was sapped by the non-stop paddling and the blood loss from his leg. The sound that emanated from his mouth sounded foreign and alien, like a dying animal, moaning with its last gasps. On the beach, heads turned, but mostly in confusion. From that distance, Jonathan simply appeared to be floating on his board, moving back to shore. It wasn't yet apparent that this odd moan was a cry for help. 
In this moment, Jonathan made a quick decision not to yell the word shark, though it was surely the foremost thought in his head. It was a decision that may have helped save his life, and it displayed a canny awareness for how to keep his predicament from getting worse. He knew that if he said the dreaded word, as had happened earlier in the day, everyone would simply scatter. Nobody would want to come into the water to help rescue him with a giant sea creature afoot. Instead, he simply yelled, Help! I'm serious. I need help. And yet, nobody came for him. His words were still being swallowed by the thundering waves and the loud sounds of the ocean. If Jonathan was going to make it back, he couldn't hope to rely on anyone or anything but his own wits and power. And so he continued to paddle as hard as he could. Jonathan knew that if the shark chose to return, his efforts would be in vain. The great white can move as quickly as 25 miles an hour, far faster than a human in peak physical form, let alone a badly injured swimmer. And moving closer to shore wasn't necessarily moving him any further from danger. Shark attacks happen most frequently in shallow water because sharks often wait near sandbars for their prey. Also, closer to the shore, the sun penetrates the water more easily. This makes for brighter, more colorful conditions, which can sometimes confuse sharks and cause them to mistake humans for their usual prey. So Jonathan had little choice but to hope that the shark wouldn't come back at least not before he was close enough to land that someone might hear his screams and rescue him. As he neared the beach, Jonathan again attempted to eke out a plea for help. Finally, someone heard him. A teenager ran over to him just as he reached the knee-deep water and collapsed into it, and a lifeguard followed suit. The teenager grasped him and asked what had happened. Eyes toward the sky, life draining out of his body, Jonathan managed to croak out his response. Shark. The teen threw his arms around Jonathan and began dragging him toward the beach. After a moment, a few others noticed the commotion going on just a few yards down from them. Jonathan was back on solid land at last. He had found his way back to Stinson Beach against all odds but he still hadn't had a chance to look at his leg to evaluate the damage. And he didn't really have the presence of mind to, especially with the action going on all around him. He felt oddly embarrassed. Was he the focus of all this drama? Simple Midwestern Jonathan, who had just gone out for a day of bodyboarding and now found himself being cradled by strangers. In a few moments, he was joined by a familiar face, Sean, his best friend looking immensely guilty for having missed everything that happened to Jonathan out in the ocean. But Jonathan felt only gratitude toward his friend for being there. He was beginning to slip in and out of consciousness, looking from face to face. Jonathan was still partially submerged in the water, and as each new tide came in and pulled out, it brought with it more of Jonathan's blood, turning the water to a horrible red color. 
Jonathan had managed to wriggle from the jaws of the great white shark and get back to shore. But now, as his blood stained the sands of Stinson Beach, one question remained. He had escaped the shark, but would he survive? Thanks for listening to Survival. Next week, we'll hear about Jonathan's difficult journey to recovery and how he's used his experience with the great white shark to make the world a safer place for all its creatures. For more information on Jonathan Catherine's experience, amongst the many sources we used, we found his book, Surviving the Shark, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Survival for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Survival was written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 